0: Uh, Good evening, everybody. Hello, my name is Guy Hanson. I'm the Director of Exhibitions here at the National Library of Australia. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land. We are now privileged to call home. Tonight is the third in a series of lectures we're presenting in partnership with the Australian National University's Centre on China in the World, as part of our public programs for the Celestial Empire Life in China exhibition, which we're currently holding uh, upstairs on the ground level. The Centre on China in the World at ANU is just one of a number of partners who've helped make this exhibition possible. It's been an extraordinary collaboration. Um, obviously between two great libraries, the National Library of Australia and the National Library of China, and also a number of commercial partners and individual donors. First and foremost, I would like to thank the National Library of China for sharing its extraordinary collection with us and with all of you. I hope you'll take the opportunity to visit the exhibition this evening, which will be on until 8 o'clock, and I hope some of you have already seen it. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, uh, Shell in Australia, Seven Network, One. Um, Optus, Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific and TFE Hotels for their generosity. Funding for this exhibition was also made available through the Commonwealth Government's National Collecting Institution's Touring Outreach Program, um, also by the Australian China Council and the ACT Government. Our speaker tonight is the Director of the Centre on China and the World, Associate Professor uh, Benjamin Penny. Ben, with his early support for this exhibition and expert advice, played a major role in making this exhibition happen. I'd particularly like to thank Ben for his generosity in lending us the surfaces of uh, Nathan Woolley to come over and curate the exhibition. Um, I I really can't um, emphasise too much how important the input of the team at the China and the World Centre was to making this exhibition happen. It was really only with their advice and help that we're able to ensure that Celestial Empire is not only a beautiful exhibition but is also one rich in scholarship. So thank you very much, Ben. Ben, of course, is very well credentialed to talk to us about China tonight. In addition to being director of the Centre, he's also editor of East Asian History, uh, an innovative e-journal freely available online. He's published works on Taoism in medieval China and on the interpretation of Chinese religions by by Westerners in the 19th century. In 2001, he was a Harold White Fellow here at the library, focusing on spiritual movements in modern and contemporary China. More recently, he's turned his attention to Shanghai and the treaty ports in the 19th century. Tonight, Ben is going to talk to us about the meeting of two cultures on the southern coast of China and how the encounter had a profound effect halfway around the world. Please welcome... Dr. Benjamin Penny.
1: Well, thank you, Guy, for that um, overly generous introduction. Um, I'm hoping that some of you have seen the exhibition already. If not, it's it's a wonderful exhibition and it's uh, nothing to do with me, really. It's all Dr. Nathan Woolley's fault, um, so that's uh, you can blame him. Um, but I'd like to... Uh, take as my goal tonight um, putting into context one item in that exhibition. Now it's something that it's such a rich exhibition that uh, even those of you who have been once or twice may have passed by a little quickly. The object that I'm interested in is is this print that I've got here. It's in a book and it's in the far end of the um, of the exhibition in the section called Looking In. And I'll get to it in a minute. This comes from a book published in 1843 called China Illustrated, and I'll be spending perhaps the second half of my lecture talking about that book. But to put it into context, I have to take you back to 1757. In 1757, a system of trade was established in southern China in the city of Canton, or to be more precise, just outside The city of Canton. Um, At that time, all foreign trade with China had to take place in this little enclave that was on the Pearl River but just outside the city walls of the city of Canton. Now, trade at the time was managed under a monopoly of a small group of Chinese merchants who'd been given that role by the Qing court. And this trading system involved a a fixed pricing system. Uh, uh, a levying of taxes in a fairly arbitrary way uh, purchasing goods on behalf of the foreign traders and so on. And the traders themselves, the foreign traders, British Dutch, Portuguese, Swedish Americans could only actually be in residence in Canton in this area in Canton for the summer months. They had to remove themselves after the summer and back and live in Macau. This was not as you can imagine, very uh, acceptable for um, the grasping foreign traders. But where they lived in, in just outside Canton was known as the 13 factories, the factories being kinds of warehouses. Um, and here is a, a picture of them. This is a little later than 1757, what I'm talking about, but you can see some of the national flags uh, listed there. Um, this is a rather ro- ro- more romantic version of the same thing. And if you really want to know what was happening, here's here's actually a plan of them. And you can see the Danish, the Spanish, the French, uh, the American, and so forth. Um, So the the trading situation at the time was such that there was an enormous appetite in Britain for Chinese goods. Um, The three most important, but by no means all of them, were tea, porcelain, and silk. And those three commodities went in um, great amounts uh, to Britain. They, were, they had to be bought using silver. And in fact, the appetite for these goods was so great that it was creating uh, economic problems in Britain uh, for the lack of silver because it was all going to China. Now, at the same time as the 13 factories were established in Canton... Uh, the British trade was under the aegis of the East India Company. The East India Company were based in Calcutta um, and had a monopoly on the Bengal opium market. They grew, sold, auctioned and traded in opium. And it was discovered that this was a lucrative way of counteracting the flood of silver out of Britain because they could demand that the opium was bought using silver in China, So it was exported from the opium fields of India to Canton where it was traded illicitly. It's important to know this was not an official trade at this stage. It was traded into, into um, Macau and from there it was taken up the coast by uh, various ships that traded offshore typically with Chinese people who then took it on shore and sold it across the empire. So, as I say, the the trading system was not pleasing to most of the foreign traders. It was rather restrictive, and they felt uh, that it wasn't um, suitable for their purposes. So, they applied pressure to the British government uh, to try to ease the trading circumstances. This eventuated in 1793 in the establishment or the sending of an embassy to China under the leadership of Lord McCartney, who's the chap on the left, Earl McCartney, he, had a, um, he was a, in the Irish system of honours, interestingly. So the goals of the McCartney embassy were to... Um, uh, ..essentially were trade-based. They wanted to open new ports to trade, not just Canton. Um, they wanted a permanent embassy in the capital, Peking... They wanted a loosening of trade restrictions in general, and they wanted the Chinese to give them what they called a small island uh, off the coast of China. The island that they had in mind was not the island they eventually got, namely Hong Kong. It was much further up the coast, off the coast of Ningbo, in, um, uh, near a, a set of islands, the most important one of which is called Zhou Shan. For those of you who have interest in Buddhism, it's near where the Buddhist holy mountain of Putoshan is but it's up up there. They wanted an island up there. So accompanying McCartney was the gentleman on the right, um, George Staunton. Um, There were, in fact, two George Stauntons on the embassy, this one and his 12-year-old son, who uh, had been learning a little Chinese in Britain with one of the other um, more senior members of the embassy, and he was therefore appointed as page to Lord McCartney. They had problems with language, the McCartney Embassy did, um, and they knew that they did because Chinese wasn't widely spoken in Britain at the time, as you can imagine. So what they did, they took four Chinese priests with them, Catholic priests. Roman Catholics had been in China since the late 16th century, and in Naples, they had been established a, a Chinese college for the training of Chinese priests. So they found a couple of priests at the Chinese college who would come with them as interpreters and they also picked up another couple who just wanted to return home. Um, As it turned out only one of them stayed beyond arrival in Macau. Um, The other difficulty was of course they didn't speak English. Uh, They spoke Latin being (laughs) Catholic priests. So the interpretation process was rather difficult between Chinese to Latin but fortunately these gentlemen were classically educated as they were at the time so they communicated in Latin. It must have been a Somewhat bizarre uh, experience, I think. Uh, one of the great proponents of the uh, expedition was Joseph Banks. Um, and this was for botanical reasons. He was interested in all kinds of botanical collecting, as we know from the Australian experience. And he was particularly interested in tea. So he got attached to the embassy two botanists who were told to collect as many botanical specimens as they could, but in particular tea plants. Um, Also on the the expedition was um, a whole raft of gifts for the Chinese emperor. Most of these were manufactured goods, uh, various machines and so forth, but it included a working planetarium that was taken apart and put on the ship, and when they got to Peking it took them 18 days to actually put back together again. Um, they also took a German band, because you need a German band when you're <laughs> <laughs> at sea, uh, I suppose. Um, and it must have been terribly impressive for the Empire. Right? I, I honestly don't know. Um, so the embassy uh, made its way to China, and, uh, by, by sea, obviously, and arrived in Macau. And then they proceeded up the coast to Zhoushan, which is where they wanted to have um, an island, uh, and to the port of Tianjin, which is still the modern port for Peking. Then they went overland to Peking, um, but the emperor wasn't in residence. And as you know, in the Qing Empire, the emperors were not Chinese, they were Manchu. And he had gone to one of their holiday residences, which was north, northeast of Peking, in, in the city that's now known as Chengdu, but at the time in Western texts, and they made an approximation of the Manchu name, Um, Jehol, Uh, that's where the emperor was at at the time and then they returned overland uh, and got themselves back to Canton one of the most amazing things about it, there were various draftsmen and artists on the trip, this is by a man whose name was Parish and as they were getting to Jehol they had to cross the Great Wall and he took time out to make a plan of it, which as you can see is a pretty remarkable thing actually when they got there, they had an audience with the emperor. This is a, a sketch from the time. And you can see here, that there, says Sir George Staunton. It's not easy to make this out, but that's Staunton there, Staunton the Elder, and that's Staunton the Younger, who was 12 at the time. Here is Lord McCartney. And as you can see in this picture, he is sitting with, on one knee with one leg there, and here's his hand, and so on, and here's his head, and here's the emperor. They give a a, um, key to the various people who were in the picture, which is rather cool. But this pose that McCartney is in was rather problematic at the time and has been a point of discussion ever since. The thing is that when somebody typically met a Chinese emperor, they acknowledged his greatness and his centrality... in in the uh, all under heaven, uh, by making what was called a koto. In English, it's come down to, us as kowtow, to kowtow to somebody, right? And this was where you got down on your hands and knees and then you touched your forehead to the ground. Um, McCartney, uh, it is said, um, objected to this because that would indicate that he was offering greater obeisance to the Chinese emperor than he ever would to his king. Uh, When he met the king, he was in this pose. Um, And there was a lot of negotiation, backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, about how he would meet the emperor and what kind of stance he would take and so on and so forth. Um, McCartney insisted that he do this because he saw, even though he obviously thought the British Empire was the greatest thing in the world, he wanted to have the relationship on the basis of equal nations in a kind of Western sense, rather than a subservient nation coming to the Chinese emperor, which was the more typical system under what was called the Chinese tribute system. It's how foreign countries had been to to China for centuries before that. So um, the gifts that were brought, therefore, are also part of the same uh, slightly difficult question. The gifts, as far as the British were concerned, were gifts from one sovereign nation to another sovereign nation. But from the Chinese point of view, they were tribute in the, in the traditional sense. Um, so there was this mismatch of ideas about the nature of relationships between states. Now, I point out the koto and the kneeling on one knee business because um, we're still not sure whether this is accurate or not. McCartney always maintained that he did not kowtow to the emperor. But as I'll tell you in a minute, a, a subsequent embassy uh, in 1816, a British embassy, refused to kowtow uh, in the negotiations and never met the emperor. They just didn't allow, him, didn't allow that ambassador to get anywhere if he didn't kowtow. It was a kind of point of, of no return. We also know that two years after McCartney, a Dutch embassy went... And the Dutch were quite happy to kowtow, and they had, a, they had a very good time. So um, there is still some discussion about whether McCartney did or did not kowtow. We will never know, but it's an interesting kind of thing to ponder. Um, lots of books came out of this expedition. Beautiful George Staunton, who I showed you before, was given the task of writing it up. And there's four magnificent volumes, which this library has sets of, of course, um, very expensive at the time, very prestige things, and some other books that came out. But again, they weren't for the common person. So although there was a lot of information that came out of the McCartney Embassy, it wasn't widely disseminated. Um, The McCartney Embassy, though, did have a lot of popular resonance. Uh, This is a cartoon by James Gilray, the famous scabrous, very funny caricaturist of the time. And You can see here, there's McCartney here and the Qianlong Emperor here. Um, Gilray, amongst others, uh, Gilray was a somewhat revolutionary chap and didn't think much of George III. And um, in some of his other caricatures, uh, George III is pictured as the Emperor Qianlong and there's a kind of uh, mix-up between the two because at the time the Chinese Emperor was thought of as being the great enlightened monarch of the world, whereas George III was to these people's minds, absolutely dreadful. Uh, So, moving on, 1793, the McCartney Embassy, and 1807 really marks the next major date in British-Chinese relations. But it's not diplomatic. This is religious. And 1807 marks the date when this man, Robert Morrison, the one on the right at the bottom, arrived in China. He was a missionary sent by the newly established London Missionary Society. He was a Protestant, obviously, Um, But he wasn't the first missionary in China. Catholics, as I say, had been there since the 1580s. The first is the famous Matteo Ricci. And from the 1580s up until the 19th century, it was firstly mostly Jesuits, and then the the Catholic mission was taken over by the Paris Foreign Mission Society. Um, But as I say, McCartney arrives in... uh, Sorry, not McCartney, Morrison arrives in Macau in 1807, Uh, has a dreadful time, actually, for a couple of years because nobody wants to employ him. Um, But eventually, he uh, gets appointed in 1809 as a translator for the East India Company. He's not known for that. What he's known for is being one of the great scholars of China and Chinese language of the time. He produced this, which is not a very good picture of the title page, but nonetheless the Dictionary of the Chinese Language. It was the first major dictionary of Chinese into English. Um, It took him uh, 18 years to do. Um, He also completed the first translation of the Bible into Chinese, uh, from English into Chinese, the first complete Bible translation. That took him 16 years. He also produced the first grammars of Chinese and many other scholarly works. But he wasn't just a, you know, a scholar in a, an attic. Uh, he also um, uh, s- basically set up the foundations for the Protestant missionary enterprise in China. He had, in fact, uh, previously been in a, a thing called the Anglo-Chinese College that was established in Malacca on the strait settlements in Malaysia. Uh, and also colleagues had been in Batavia, modern Jakarta, where um, they had been as the term was at the time, waiting for China, waiting for China to open to try to... You know, China was the great prize for missionaries, and they worked amongst the Chinese communities in Malacca and in Batavia um, to get ready, and, and uh, Morrison had been in, in Malacca. Um, he did have a, 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 an impact on diplomatic history because this next uh, embassy I'm going to speak about, the Amherst Embassy... He was in fact appointed as a translator and interpreter. Um, He dies in 1834. That's his tombstone there in Macau. um, And he's buried in, if you ever go to Macau I thoroughly recommend visiting here, the small Protestant chapel. A very, very beautiful place and a very interesting graveyard behind which includes Morrison's grave, his wife, one of his children, many other interesting folk. So Come 1816, this chap, Lord Amherst, as you can see, here is Lord Amherst, etc., etc., um, <laughs> is appointed to do another expedition to China, another embassy by the British government, for much the same reasons as, Mor- uh, as uh, McCartney. Um, it's, it, along with Morrison as an interpreter, uh, one of the other major people on the trip was George Staunton the Younger. 12 year old boy who'd, been, who'd met Chenlong before. I didn't say before, but Chenlong was actually, he was a, one of the only people who could speak Chinese. And he actually had a conversation with the Chenlong emperor as a 12 year old, which apparently charmed the Chenlong emperor and gave him a gift, which is very nice. But Staunton, the youngest, stayed in, in uh, Canton and Macau uh, for some years and then was appointed interpreter along with Morrison on this embassy. So you can see that there's a, a, a quantum leap in knowledge about the place and the language and what Chinese people were about between 1793 and 1817. Um, They made their way up the coast in the same way that McCartney had done and they started, they arrived in Tianjin and then they moved their way to Peking, which is not that far, overland and along the way there were negotiations about how the meeting would take place and what rituals would be honoured and how the emperor would be met and all of that kind of stuff. Um, as I say, the refusal of the Amherst, uh, of Amherst to consider kowtowing um, meant that the Chinese just said, "Go home." So they didn't meet the emperor. They didn't do anything they intended to do, and they were given, uh, you know, they were hurriedly told to depart. Nonetheless, they they made the same way as McCartney. They went there by ship up the coast and then they came inland down the Grand Canal and made their way overland. And again, um, it was diplomatically a failure, but like McCartney, it produced an awful lot of information about China that was otherwise unknown. So we're in 1817... And the next thing that I, I want to talk about, which is getting up to the end of where I will speak about in this whistle-stop tour of Chinese-British interactions of this period, is the First Opium War. Now, I have to go back a bit to tell you a bit more about opium and the opium trade. British sales of opium began uh, in 1781 and between 18 and, and gradually increased. Um, between 1821 and 1837, sales increased fivefold. By 1838, um, the British were selling 1,400 tonnes of opium per year to the Chinese. Uh, This was a big trade. What had started off as an attempt to redress a balance in silver um, exchange ended up making the Chinese in deficit for silver in the opposite direction because of the huge amount of opium that was being sold. It was being sold under the aegis of the East East India Company, as I said. But in 1834, they lose their monopoly. The British government says you don't have a monopoly on China trade anymore. And what happens is that a lot of private traders come in and, in fact, the selling of opium goes up even further because there's money to be made. Now, the Chinese are not stupid, of course, and they see the damage that opium is doing. And in 1839, the emperor um, instructs one of the officials in Canton, a man by the name of Lin Shu to destroy the opium trade. What does he do? He closes navigation on the Pearl River up to Canton. He seizes opium from the 13 factories and he also goes offshore, his people go offshore, he sends people offshore to see ships in, that are actually in international waters and seize the opium off those ships, destroys them. The British, of course, are not very pleased about this because this is worth an awful lot of money. Um, as a result trying to negotiate this through um, British government officials convinced, the tra- convinced opium traders that they should in fact hand over some of their opium and the British government would pay them compensation um, they gave up more than 20,000 chests and 200 sacks of opium doing this and they were all burned on the shore of the Pearl River in, in Canton um, This, of course, leads to tension, and I won't go through all the bits and pieces, but suffice to say it ends in war. And um, the British win decisively. You can see here Chinese war junks being destroyed. Essentially, this is a technological superiority thing. The British Navy was just a whole lot more powerful, a whole lot better armed. The Chinese weren't used to actually having naval battles against modern, at that time, modern Western navies. And in 1842 we get the signing of the Treaty of Nanking. Um, This is what the treaty actually looks like, the treaty itself. The Treaty of Nanking opened what were called five treaty ports. That is Canton, uh, Amoy, Fuzhou, Ningbo, and Shanghai. And this is really 1843, the first foreigners end up living in Shanghai. And this marks the beginning, actually, of Shanghai as a major world city. Um, The first foreigners who went there, harking back to Morrison, uh, were the consul, the person who had been appointed consul, and he was accompanied by two London Missionary Society missionaries. They were the first people in Shanghai in 1843 to establish the foreign settlement there. Uh, So the Treaty of Nanking opens five treaty ports. Hong Kong is ceded in perpetuity, so they didn't get their island further up the coast at Zhou Shan. They got Hong Kong Island instead, um, uh, they got paid compensation for all of the opium that had been destroyed and they had to pay war reparations. So it's a, a fairly um, appalling uh, settlement, really. Um, I'm not going to go any further, but I'm just going to note that this was not the end of military battles over opium. I, between 1858 and 1860, there happened what was called the Second Opium War. And the Second Opium War led to more ports being opened, more access to the country and so forth and and then as the 19th century progresses the rights of westerners to have residence in China, certain parts of of land were ceded to the foreign powers and so forth and this goes on um, throughout the 19th century but that's where I want to leave it for the moment and just pause and think about the information that was coming to Britain about China by this stage so Going back again to the Jesuits, um, one of the major works, very, very influential works in uh, Britain and indeed across Europe at the time, was a book by a Jesuit priest by the name of Duhald. Um, It appears in English in 1738, just a few years after it was published in French, under the title The General History of China. This becomes probably the single most influential book on China until the one I'm going to tell you about later. Um, we also get publications out of McCartney's embassy as I say. The Dutch embassy of 1795 produces material, very interesting material. Amherst's embassy, 1816-17 and of course all through this time there's works being produced by scholars based in and around Canton and Macau. So the works of Morrison but also the works of people like John Francis Davis and many others who are working at the time. So Let me come now back to here. This is where we started. And this is an illustration from a work in the exhibition. And that work is called China Illustrated. And it comes from 1843. And it's published in London. Um, China Illustrated is a very interesting work. And I'm going to make the claim that after Duhald, it is the single most influential work on China in Britain. Um, It was published in 1843. It was a so-called part publication. That is, you got... um, It's like those things they advertise on television now, you know? Buy part one at your newsagent for $3 now, and another one will come out in, you know, two weeks, another one in two weeks, another one in two weeks, and eventually you'll get the full set and know how to sew or something, whatever it is. Um, This was in four parts with 32 engravings in each part. It was republished in 1858 under a slightly different name, the Chinese Empire Illustrated, again in seven parts, with the same engravings and a few more added. I won't go into the details. Um, but I will note one thing. I think there is no coincidence that the two editions of China Illustrated happened in 1843 and 1858. 1843 is the date of the Treaty of Nanking after the First Opium War, 1858... Is in the middle of the Second Opium War but happens after another major victory and another major treaty. In other words, these books are somehow implicated with um, military victories over China. There's a certain pride or something in England, curiosity, that leads to the publication of these books full of scenes of China that have never been seen before. I'll leave you to ponder on the motivation for that. So the guy who um, who did the engravings for this, and and the engraver is actually much better known than the man who wrote the words, but we'll get to him too. So this is the page that's open in the exhibition, showroom of lantern merchant at Peking. Um, this is the frontispiece of the of the uh, of the first of the four volumes. This is the title page, as you can see. In its China in its is, in a series of views displaying the scenery, architecture, and social habits of that ancient empire, drawn from original and authentic sketches by Thomas Allam Esquire, with historical and descriptive notices by the Reverend G. N. Wright, M.A., Volume 1. Oops, sorry, just go back a bit. Um, published by Fisher, Son, and Company, and we'll get to them later. Uh, Alum, this gentleman, is actually as much known as an architect as he is as a topographical illustrator, but he is very well known as a topographical illustrator. He travelled extensively through Europe and the Near East, but he never went to China. He never went anywhere near China. Um, His biography, which is written by his great-great-granddaughter, I think, something like that, notes that to do his book on China Illustrated, he really only had to walk 200 yards from his home to the British Museum. Um, His architectural work, this is one of his notable works, St Peter's Notting Hill, as you can see, 1855-57 in the classical style, a rather beautiful building. Its interior, I think, is just lovely. Uh, But he was quite something, Alan. Um, uh, You can see here, though, that the work on China was by no means the only thing that he did. He was a... Jobbing illustrator, let us say. And you can see that his his illustrative career starts in 1832, when he is all of 28, and it ends in... Well, that's the last one I could find. It was 58. I think it's because towards the end of his career, he became much better known as an architect. He, in fact, was one of the people who founded the organisation that became REBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects. Um, But you can see that he's doing illustrated works on northern England on the Midlands, on Constantinople, on France, the castles and abbeys of England, Scotland. Then we get to China in 1843. And then costume in Turkey and Italy, Constantinople again, Surrey, Syria, the Holy Land and Asia Minor and the British Switzerland, which is the Lake District. I wondered where the British Switzerland was for a while so I noticed the uh, subtitle. George Newnham Wright, who wrote the words, such as they are, was an Irishman who was an Anglican clergyman who lived in London. We don't know much about Wright. Um, he was... Um, we don't even know exactly when he was born. It's probably about 1794. Um, he was a teacher of classics, privately, as well as later a schoolmaster. But he was, as, as Alum was a kind of jobbing illustrator, Wright was a jobbing writer. And you can see here, this is some of his works only, uh, Latin, Greek. And so on. Uh, he also does biography, William IV, Louis Philippe, ex king of the French, and various others, uh, Duke of Wellington. But this is his works on um, guides and similar and illustrated works. And you can see how small the type ended up on PowerPoint because there are just so many of them. And he starts in 1821, as you can see, and the last I can find is 1864 historical guide to Bath. But being Irish, um, he, of course, was interested in Dublin, Killarney, the north coast of Antrim, Wicklow, Ireland. Then he moves to North Wales, More Ireland, Scotland, and the Waverley novels. France Illustrated is the work, the first one he does with Thomas Allen, The Mediterranean, Rhine, Italy, and Greece, China Illustrated with Allen, And then he goes to Lancashire and all the rest down to Bath. So, again, you can see that these books are produced by people who don't actually know much about China at all. They never went close to China. Alum was, uh, sorry, Wright was the kind of guy that you got to write stuff because you needed someone you knew who would churn out the words. And everybody knew that these China Illustrated and other books like it that you can see up here, were actually, people wanted the pictures to a large extent. The words were just to fill it up. Now, let's get back to our picture. Um, and see what, Alan, uh, see what Wright actually wrote about it. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. In fact, I'm not going to read you very much of it at all. But when you look at his... He's got about two and a half pages of text about this picture. None of it actually refers to the picture itself, let us say. It's actually about the topic of lanterns in China. And I've managed to track down three of the things that he cribbed. And when I say cribbed, I really mean cribbed. Um, he used the 1842 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, entry on Lanterns. That's that year. He uses a thing called the Popular Encyclopedia from 1836. He uses some material from the Amherst Embassy, because there's anecdotes about Amherst and lanterns. There are two places where Amherst and lanterns come together. I haven't been able to find where they come from, and uh, arguably the world's greatest scholar on the Amherst. Embassy, um, I asked for some help and she didn't know where they came from either. So there's some other Amherst source that we don't know about. But one of the things that he says about lanterns, I shall read because it's kind of cute. He says, In one of the cases of the Chinese exhibition held for some years at Hyde Park Corner was a superb lantern used in China on occasions of state, which the curator, that is, of this exhibition, describes as follows It is 10 feet in height and four in diameter. At At both extremities, the frame is richly carved and gilt and covered with crimson and white silk, adorned with the most costly and beautiful embroidery. The tassels and beadwork that depend from the bottom and from the projecting portion of each corner in the upper part are in keeping with the rest. There are no less than 258 crimson silk tassels, pendants from various parts. In short, the national lantern is as magnificent as carving, gilding, silks, embroidery and beadwork can make it. That comes from a a text he is quoting... A man called W.B. Langdon from a book called 10,000 Chinese Things which is a catalogue of this exhibition in Hyde Park Corner which actually was originally an exhibition in America uh, collected by a man called Nathaniel Dunn but we won't go there. But I suspect that is the lantern he's describing. This is an image that comes from 10,000 Chinese Things. It's the only lantern that's illustrated in that book. And you can see it kind of looks like what he might have said. It's got the, the wonderful wood carving the embroidery, the silk and so forth. It's got lots of tassels. I'm not sure if it's 200 and whatever it was, but there we are. So you can see that, that Wright has just put together little bits and pieces of stuff to create some writing to go with the picture. Um, Alam's work was very, very popular and within, what, a year and a half, it was translated into German, as you can see, Italian and Spanish, at least. I haven't tracked any. These are just the ones I've seen. Um, So it's it's spreading all over Europe very, very quickly. It was well-reviewed. This is from the Eclectic Review in 1843, where it's listed, again, with Fisher's Drawing Room Scrapbook, the Juvenile Scrapbook, and this one. Note Fisher, again. uh, This is the publisher. So these are three works produced by the publisher Fisher. And in it, it says, as you can see, hitherto the Chinese people have been unknown to Europe, but it's not too much to say that Mr. Allen's drawings will do more to familiarise us with the scenery of the country, the peculiar style of architecture, etc., etc. Very positive, and it goes on much, much longer than that, but it's all very positive. Interestingly, the article immediately before it is a narrative of a visit to the Australian colonies, which I thought was kind of cute. It was also reviewed in the monthly review... And again, Mr. Fisher has never published a more splendid work than this, nor one so opportune and anxiously required. It has been remarked with unquestionable justice that China is the most wonderful country and that Chinese the most wonderful people in the world. Yet how little has hitherto been accurately ascertained with regard to either. So we're getting, you're getting the flavour, right? Um, I want to move now to look at some of the pictures themselves. So I've said that Alum never went to China. So how did he know what he was drawing? Well, as his great-great-granddaughter says, he went over the road to the British Museum. And we know he sometimes gives sources, not by any means all of them. There are 132-odd engravings in the book, but he gives sources for some. Three are mentioned are actually... um, Well, two are military officers, artists that are attached to the Royal Marines and the Royal Navy... There's a man who is the nephew of the rather well-known Hong Kong artist George Chinnery. His name's not Chinnery, but he's related to him. He says that one of them is from a drawing in possession of Sir George Staunton, Bart. So that's the second George Staunton, the little boy who grew up. Um, one of them comes from a painting in the possession of the East India Company. But there are two sets of work that he relies on rather a lot. One is a work by a French author, Auguste Bourget, translated into English early, called Sketches of China and the Chinese. And one is a set of watercolours produced by a man called William Alexander, who was one of the artists on the McCartney Embassy of 1793. And as an example, I just want to show you a few of these things. So this comes from Alam's book, The Putala, or Great Temple Near Jehol in Tartary, This is where they met, the McCartney embassy met uh, the emperor. And it's now the city known as Chengdu. But this is is the Potala, but it's not the Potala in Lhasa in Tibet. The Qing emperors uh, were Tibetan Buddhists and acknowledged the Dalai Lama and Tibetan Buddhism in general. So he had a reproduction Potala made. Uh, in Chengdu. You can see it today. It's about one third the size of the real thing but it's still there. So this is Alam's engraving and this is where he got it from. This is an engraving um, after William Alexander. We don't, as far as I'm aware, we don't have the original Alexander work but you can see it's uh, obviously the same thing. But if I point you to the foreground here and look at the foreground here um, uh, Alam has changed it completely and added some interest in the front but he's also taken away that little pagoda and I'm not entirely sure why uh, we see it again on this one Temple of the Bonses at Kwang Yin Rock Bons was the early 19th century word and later for a Buddhist priest so the actual temple we speak of is just in there This is in Guangdong province somewhere. I'm not sure where. And this is the Alexander that it comes from. You can see that it's obviously the same thing. Look at the shape of the rock. But again, uh, Alam has added these kind of boats and so forth from the original Alexander. I think with further research, which I haven't done yet, um, I'll be able to find where he got the boats from. Because... uh, Alexander did do studies of boats, just boats that he saw, because he was a naval uh, illustrator, right? So he was very interested in boats. And I suspect you can find the exact source of of this vessel and these other vessels um, there. This one is slightly different. This one is the bamboo aqueduct at Hong Kong. You can see the aqueduct there. And it comes not from the Alexander uh, work, but from Bourget's sketches of China and the Chinese which is here, which manages to look like something that isn't quite China. I'm not quite sure what it looks like, but um, it, it's rather kind of French bucolic or something. Uh, but you can see here, he's, he's added you know, all these people and the water buffaloes and all that stuff, whereas the, the alum is uh, somewhat sparser, uh, but it's certainly different. So alum was clearly using these things and then adjusting them but not adjusting them with any knowledge of what he was actually looking at. So I'd just like to ponder a bit about this book, this book, China Illustrated, and why I think it's so important and where it stands um, in kind of bookmaking, actually, in the 19th century in Britain. Um, in about 1820 a new method of making engravings became popular in London. And this is to make a steel engraving. Prior to the early 1820s, engravings were made on copper. It's obviously a lot easier to make an engraving on copper because it's so soft. Steel is kind of a hard material to work with. But the very softness of copper makes it wear out rather quickly. With a copper plate engraving, you can make, apparently, I'm told, between two and 500 impressions before you can't use it anymore, before it wears out. A steel engraving, on the other hand, you can do 25,000 before it wears out. This is, um, this is a sea change in how you can, you can make books. Um, this led to a boon in illustrated books, of which China Illustrated is just one. It happens, what's well, 1843... 20 years after this kind of process really gets going. And as you might remember, the books that I was pointing to that Alan was making and that Wright was writing for occur after the introduction of steel engraving. Now, why? Well, steel engraving makes an illustrated book so much cheaper. It becomes an industrial process rather than an artisanal process, if you will. Um, This this process has been called by... Scholar of book history James Raven, as the industrialization of print, which I think is, is a, a kind of rather good description of what it's like. So, this boom in illustrated books at the time leads to things like annuals and gift books and this kind of travel book. Now, you might remember in the Eclectic Review, review of, of Alum, there was also uh, a, a children's annual scrapbook. And uh, another scrapbook, so these are the kind of precursors of the kind of things that I got as a kid. You know, the look and learn annual, and the you know the these kind of annuals that kids get. Alum himself, fortunately for me, actually spoke about this, and he said the ease with which the impressions were multiplied from steel plates to an almost unlimited degree enabled the publishers to reduce the cost within the means of classes hitherto deemed incapable of appreciating the fine arts. This and the perfection to which engraving has been brought rendered their success complete. Some hundreds of thousands changed hands by this means and now they are found in every quarter of the globe. So if we look at the books that were produced out of the McCartney embassy or even out of the Amherst embassy, these were were expensive items. They were handmade items they were prestige items whereas just a few decades later these kind of books are mass-produced and we know a little bit about quite how they got into all corners of the globe and this is a rather interesting story Fisher and Son the publisher that I pointed out earlier begins publishing topographical works with illustrations using steel engraving in about 1828 29 and this is what was part of what we call part or serial or numbers publishing. Like I was saying, you know, you get first part, second part, third part, and so forth. It's a lot cheaper. You can do much larger print runs. But what Fisher & Company did, which was really revolutionary at the time, they avoided the normal networks of booksellers. They established their own depots and in, in distribution points all across England, Ireland, and indeed in the States. So I will just give you a list. London, Liverpool, Leeds, Birmingham, Plymouth, Bristol, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Dublin, Belfast, Oxford, Newcastle upon Tyne, Whitehaven, Kendall, Newcastle and the Potteries, Shrewsbury, Portsea, Norwich, Lynn, Canterbury, Rochester, Ipswich, Rye and New York, Philadelphia and Boston. What would happen is that these distribution points were kind of independent distributors who would employ door-to-door salespeople. So that Messrs Fisher & Son would send a great wodge of their publications to each of these distribution points and then they would be sold door-to-door. They could be sold door-to-door because they were much cheaper, right, than, they, than books had used to be. And they were made offers. So it was, you know, hello, madam, are you interested in China Illustrated? If you wish to subscribe to the four volumes, I'll give you the first one free. It was this kind of thing that was doing it. So um, this is... This accounts for the extraordinary distribution of this work throughout the UK and America. Um, it's one of the books that you actually can find in book catalogues. If you're looking for a copy of Staunton's work on McCartney's Embassy, uh, it's very, very rare and astronomically priced. Alum is, if you're rich, it's affordable, and there's still plenty of copies around. And indeed, printmakers—sorry, uh, not printmakers—print dealers have taken with alacrity to Alan because they buy a copy and cut all the prints out and sell them as individual prints. And you can see those almost everywhere you look. So I'm just going to conclude with a few thoughts. First of all, um, most British people of this period never went near China, obviously. And indeed would rarely, if ever, have met a Chinese person. There weren't that many Chinese in Britain at the time. China, for them was actually a textual phenomenon. It's a phenomenon from books and magazines and so forth, newspapers. Despite the publication of lots of works about China before the advent of steel engraving, they were not only prestige items, but they were sparsely illustrated. So most people didn't have any idea of what China looked like. So I hope that I've shown you tonight that this book, China Illustrated, from which the item in the exhibition comes, changed all of that. And that's why I think this is one of the most influential works on China in the 19th century. So to go back to my title, um, When Empires Met, I'm going to rephrase it slightly and ask the question, where did these two empires meet? Where did the British Empire meet the Qing Empire? Well, uh, they met in Macau, They met in the 13 factories outside Canton. They met in the treaty ports after 1843. But also, I would argue, and probably most importantly, in the British Museum. And quite possibly in this room, the prints and drawings room, where a lot of the material that alum used is still housed. So thank you very much.